Welcome, everyone. Um, I'd like to welcome you um, to the first of our Tachayul Nativity and Emergent Issues podcast series, organized by the members of the ERC project named Tachayul at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity, the IGP. I am Sertaj Sehdikolo, the primary investigator of this five-year project. The need to this podcast series emerged due to a number of reasons. Firstly, the members of this team, as many of you may already be familiar, are often native scholars who have expertise about the very geographies they have grown up in. The project is carried in 11 different countries in Eastern Europe, Middle East, and South Asia, often referred to as the Global South. That being said, um, those very contexts are more vulnerable to global changes and crisis, as we have seen in, for instance, the flood catastrophe in Pakistan, a result of the global warming um, on top of a, a number of other issues. Thus, the members of the team has suggested to create a platform where we can address the emergent issues as they happen with other scholars, intellectuals, and activists. And today we have Dr. Fatima Sadegi, Dr. Sumin Kalia from the Takhayil Project, Dr. Huan He from the Institute for Global Prosperity, Dr. Ala Shehabi, a UCL scholar and also a former member of the RGP, and uh, Rumeysa Chandereli, a Muslim feminist intellectual and activist. And we also have an anonymous scholar and activist from India. Uh, we also have two assistants who have been tremendously helpful in setting up this entire platform and the YouTube channel, Hazal Aydin from, from Koch University and Maryam Zishan Köker. So we are, yes, quite excited about today and about starting to connect with you in this um, new platform. Our topic is the uprisings in Iran and how it's received in different parts of the world. We have guests to provide insights onto it on the topic from China, Pakistan, India, Bahrain, Turkey, and the UK. So... Um, Without further ado, I'd like to turn to Dr. Fatima Sadegi. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you, Sartaj, um, for the introduction and for organizing this event. As you see, the title of this talk um, is The Power of Ordinary in Creating Extraordinary. Let me begin with this question. Why is this movement significant and what possibilities does it offer? Here, I assume that at least some of you might have followed the news about this incident that is um, going on in Iran. So therefore, I will try to answer this question by explaining an aspect that has been almost entirely ignored. My argument is that this movement is strong because it is rooted in ordinary life. It is strong because it is a disruptor of what I call hyper-masculinity as an inseparable element of the political apparatus in today's Iran. Let me start with a phrase that we hear frequently these days, especially in Western media. I mean, the morality police. Mahsa Amini was arrested and killed by the police while in custody, but the so-called morality police is a misunderstanding of the situation, I think, because the function of this special unit 
is to chase and discipline women who are improperly veiled. There is no morality in it. The so-called morality police is notorious. Please note that this is not the first time that a young woman is getting killed while in custody. The morality becomes more questionable if you consider the deceptions and fabrications of the government and security who attempt to conceal uh, the truth about the murder of Mahsa Amini and others by televised confessions, fabricated stories, and so forth. I would use hypersexuality disorder to describe this entire apparatus, including the discourse of hijab into the Iran. By hypersexuality disorder, I mean an excessive preoccupation with sexual fantasies that is difficult to control, but causes distress with negative impacts on life and heterosocial relationships. Let me give you an example. One of them is actually the equation of unveiling and nakedness right after the Iranian revolution of 1979, in which women participated massively, Ayatollah Khomeini declared that naked women should not appear in public. The equation of nakedness and unveiling has been repeatedly expressed ever since. But it is not limited to the relationship between the government and women. The current leadership and officials attributed the protests to the enemy, namely Israel and the US, and they describe it by using a certain set of words that are replicated from one context to the other. Delusion, deception, Western influence, penetration, and of course, nakedness. Ordinary Iranians are depicted as passive female objects who could easily be deceived by the West. They are perceived as not being capable of deciding for themselves. The irony is that the more people shout on the streets, the more their agency and creativity are negated. Here I am going to show you some slides about this equation of nakedness and the compulsory um, and the protest against the compulsory hijab. Here in this picture, you see one of the officials of Azahra University who is uh, telling to the students who are protesting inside the university that you just want to get naked. And this is another quotation by Hamid Rassoi, former deputy of the Iranian parliament, who said their desire meaning the protesters' desire, is to graze like an animal and have sex with different person every night. And of course, there are so many answers to this. By Even by uh, veiled women. For instance, here you see that Katarina Goroch, uh, in response to Rasai, said, Rasai made a mistake by slandering Iranian women. Did you think that everyone is like you, who thinks about sexual issues from morning till night? If it wasn't like that, you wouldn't have said such nonsense. We women not stop, will not stop fighting until we silence people like you. And another Twitter account called Kim Su says, this is what freedom means, not your empty thoughts. This account is actually uh, referring to the, you know, the voluntarily veiling and also um, unveiling of these women together. The discourse uh, of the equation of I mean, discourse of nakedness is also deeply masculinist. Apart from language of mindset of the authorities, it is also expressed and produced in public ceremonies, documents, films, posters, monuments, and even architectural works. Hypermasculinity is best exemplified in the figure of Qasem Soleimani, the commander-in-chief of the Quds branch of the Iranian Guardian Corps. He was killed by the Americans in 2019, mainly Trump administration, actually. Soleimani represents the ideal manhood and the imagined super virility of the Islamic Republic. He is entitled as the man of the field, or Marde Meidan, as the Iranian officials repeatedly call him. After this, his death, his monuments have been constructed and erected all over the country. Despite these desperate efforts, 
Younger generations in Iran do not feel much identification with this personality. The reason is because the ideal manhood is fabricated and has little to do with the harsh realities of millions of men and men, women. This hyper-masculine language is also deeply rooted in the ways in which the Iranian police behave with the protesters. While beating women and men severely and blaming, blaming them for being corrupt, they also use excessive violent and sexist language. However, let me say that Iran is not an exception. Hypermasculinity plays, uh, plays a pivotal role in right-wing populist movements across the world. In these movements, the image of a supermasculine champion is embodied in certain political figures who appear as the savior of the whole nation. It is not only the greatness of the nation that he promised, but also the, the return of the imagined lost masculinity. This demonstrates how deeply hypermasculinity and right-wing politics are interwoven. To give another example, the war in Ukraine not only demonstrates the imperialist ambitions of the Rus um, Russian ruler, but also acts as a muscle-building drug. Regaining masculine power and superiority by war appears to be a subconscious motivation. Another example would be the counter-revolution in Egypt that also employed hypersexuality discourse to suppress the protesters in Tahrir Square. Jamie Adinson, the political scientist, demonstrated how the counter-revolution in Egypt won the streets of Cairo and other cities by manipulating the people's minds. Among other things, this has been done by raping women in the streets and creating a sense of potency slash impotency and capability slash incapability among the protesters. Raping and harassing women resulted in the collective concern of women that streets are unsafe. By using stereotypical notions of femininity and masculinity, the military succeeded in silencing the Egyptian revolution. An extreme act of violence not only targeted women's bodies, but also their, uh, their stereotypes around female shame and male honor. That's how the counter-revolution succeeded. In all of these cases, the aim is to mobilize the notion through a hyper-masculine hyper discourse. In doing this, equality is easily reconciled, economic and moral corruption is justified, and dignified life, rights, and freedom is negated. But let me go back to, you know, the, 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 the question that I started uh, this talk. Why is this movement in Iran centered around the slogan, women, life, freedom is important? I think it is significant because it disrupts the hyper-masculinity discourse of the regime and shows that the government is morally corrupt. This movement emerges from ordinary realities on the ground rather than the illusory world of the authorities. In early 2018, Vida Mubahed dressed in sporty clothing, climb up to a platform on Engelab or Revolution Street in the center of Tehran, removed her headscarf and waved it in the air to demonstrate her opposition to compulsory hijab. This highly civil and creative disobedience was followed by other women and the movement quickly became known as the Girls of the Revolution Street or Dukhtaran Khiyaban Engelab. The girls of the Revolution Street pose a deep fracture within a hypersexual and hypermasculine discourse of the Islamic Republic. In the picture, you show that Vida Mubahed, um, on the left side of the picture, uh, standing on the platform and waving her scarf, is um, this is really, I mean, that was really, um, although very uh, civil disobedience, but it was disrupting the hegemonic 
ordinary because what Vida Mohamed is doing this doing here is to put him herself in the uh, as part of the ordinary life in the revolutionary street in Angola street in, in in part of Tehran and on the right side of the picture you see um, Nargis uh, Husseini who actually followed and then uh, I have to say and the recent in that she was arrested in the recent protests. So in doing this, they actually put themselves in a part of ordinary life. But this is not a um, significant act because it's also disrupt the hegemony of ordinary. This recent movement is strong. I mean, not the, the guys of the revolution street, but the recent movement in Iran is strong because it is rooted in ordinary life, similar to the guys of the revolution street, and takes its strength and energy from ordinariness. Thousands of ordinary women and men took to the streets of Tehran and many other cities because they are frustrated by the humiliating, hyper-masculine and hyper-sexual oppression. This is, in fact, this ordinariness that creates the extraordinary. This ordinariness, ordinariness is exemplified in various slogans, songs, tweets, artistic words and photos. And I'm going to show you one of the, the pictures, you know, became quite public these days. This is a picture by a film industry worker, Dina Rod. She actually um, circulated in her Twitter account. And in this tweet, she says, We went between work to Javadie, had breakfast, and returned. So this is actually, this picture shows a coffee house, or Khane, south part of, uh, in a neighborhood in the, the south part of Tehran, which is called Javadie. I have to say that Jabodi is actually a working class neighborhood. Those who are familiar with the atmosphere of the Middle East and Iran know that working class uh, neighborhoods are not that much women friendly, especially in the coffee house that are mainly houses that are mainly male dominated. But here you see that these two young women um, went to that um, coffee house and then you also see in this picture that the gentlemen in the picture are actually busy with their own works. There is no sign of sarcastic remarks. There is no sign of staring at them. One of them is on his phone. The other is drinking his tea. And we also see in the mirror a picture of a, another gentleman who might be the owner or another customer. But we've seen him uh, from his back. But he is also busy with his own stuff. So I think that this is the normalcy. This is the ordinary thing um, that is very important here. This is an ordinary that creates um, an extraordinary. And they also uh, eat breakfast as if another era has begun. This is, a, this is another era. This is another uh, atmosphere. So that is very, um, I think this is significant, actually. In the face of hegemony, so many women insist on ordinary life eating breakfast in a coffee house in downtown Tehran, dancing, walking, singing, painting, poetry, love, and sport. Here you see another picture of two young women walking on the, um, what, again, one of the, in the, one of the um, neighborhoods in downtown Tehran called Kuche Ma'ari, which is very traditional. So again, here you see that how, disrupt, how they disrupt the, the whole um, hegemonic atmosphere. And this is another picture which is also very interesting for me because it shows a man writing on the wall, if you are a man, be a woman, hashtag freedom. So I have to say that, in fact, the enemy that the authorities talk about is life itself. 
the Islamic Republic declare a war with life by ignoring the everyday life and, and its hardship, including corruption, precarity, environmental crisis, and severe discrimination and inequality. But precisely because of this, it is doomed to failure. I think here rests the power and popularity of the slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom. It also explains the popularity of the song Baraye, or For, slash Because Of, by Sherwin Hajipur. I have to say that the singer, this is a picture of Sherwin Hajipur, um, who was arrested only because of singing the song. But a few days ago, he was released on bail. The song its quick popularity and the arrest of the singer all demonstrate the power of the ordinary in disrupting the hegemonic rule. All that I try to say here is concentrated in this popular song. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Fatima. The, our next speaker is Dr. Sumin Kalia. Sumit? Uh, hi, thank you very much. Am I audible? This Iran protest has kind of sent waves across the Muslim world and uh, the women across the Muslim world are actually, you know, having different kind of mixed reactions. And I would like to kind of bring to light a few kind of observations that I've had from Pakistan. And uh, interestingly, uh, as always, we've seen that Pakistan's context is rather different. Um, in the case of Iran, it's usually the, uh, the morality comes from above. Um, in the case of Pakistan, morality comes from below. And uh, it's usually the women who get uh, prosecuted by their husbands, by their fathers, by their um, brothers. And it's within the homes that this prosecution goes on. And uh, at this point, uh, I was reminded of the case of Noor Mukaddam uh, last year. She was brutally murdered. Her head was literally chopped off by her own husband. Um she was not exactly a husband. She was at a friend's place. And she actually, is, it is can be considered a high-profile murder because she was the daughter of the ambassador of Pakistan. And as yet, the her murderer has not been, um, you know, put to trial to in a proper way. And the trial has gone on and he has been able to evade proper prosecution since the year, entire year has passed. And during this time... Um, Many other cases have come up when women have been raped and killed and murdered by mostly their own family members under the pretext of honor killing. And uh, what this makes me think is this hegemony that uh, Fatma was talking about. It uh, does not necessarily need the violence of the state sometimes or the monopoly of the violence that the state requires. It's the violence that somehow permeates the society. And then... <laughs> And then who do you hold responsible? I mean, when you do a protest, if there is a state, it lies like a civil disobedience. And how does a woman say, raise a voice against her own family when she's made to suffer um, these kind of injustice and oppression from the very hands of their own family? And that's where I feel like the question of hegemony becomes a little bit more more complicated as to you don't have the right person to argue with. And then I bring in the question of the women themselves committing violence against other women and uh, acting as the morality police, the right-wing populist women of different Islamist political parties. They, they, I mean, the kind of masculinities that they demonstrate, that is also a kind of question that, you know, is somehow difficult to this 
to address who do we then you know go and talk to the, these kind of oppressions about so i believe when at this juncture when these women women from iran are actually able to raise their voice we need to perhaps ask these questions as to how do we confront these hegemonic orders that have permeated not just the state and politicized the state and made religion a tool of oppression but also the society and the family as a way of exercising patriarchal control thank you very much this is very thought provoking i was just tweeting your question actually which has uh, delayed my uh, unmuting myself process so now we are turning to dr huan he so my part i were i think i'm mainly talking about the China's influence of this Iran uprising in China from a media and social media perspective. Uh, that is why I've uh, collected some screenshots of how the state media, uh, the commercialized media, uh, they represent like a, two kinds of institutional media, how they reported it, and uh, also some social media and how ordinary people reacted to it. Uh, so uh, first of all, the state media, this is a screenshot of uh, when I searched the website of Xinhua News, which is the Chinese, uh, the most authoritative Chinese state news on their report, because uh, starting from the 15th of September until now, because I think this is where the instance that happened and when the movement started to gain power on the ground. So as you can see from this, I, it's not a literary translation of the titles, uh, but as you can see from the keywords uh, that popped up, Uh, the social movement in Iran has never been mentioned even once in the Chinese version of the state media. So uh, from uh, in the past over 20 days, I think most of the focus is still on uh, the uh, nuclear power, for example, uh, the deputy foreign minister's visit, and uh, even the earthquake. And very funny here, as you can see on the right, They even mentioned the World Wrestling Championship and the very famous Iranian athlete missed the bronze medal. They, that even caught attention of Chinese state media. But however, uh, what is going on the ground was never properly reported in the Chinese version of the state media. Um, and then we can have an English kind of a version of the media because they do report to different in different languages. And it's a pity that I don't understand Arabic, so can, I can only use English as a kind of a comparison. Um, so you in, in the English website, Iran appear more frequently than on the Chinese website, at least the database. And the, the ones, the news headlines that has stars are the ones where uh, the social movements are or protest has been mentioned. But however, um, I think this really coincides with what Fatima said earlier. Whenever such incidents are reported, uh, they are reported from an uh, Iranian state's perspective. For example, two uh, French nationals was detained or confessed to inciting protest. And also it says here, it's a kind of a, the, the West is using human rights as a tool to press others, for example, the Iranian people. Also here, uh, Iran is accusing the Europe of, of holding double standard. And also Iran slams hypocrisy of the so-called sympathizers of the Iranian people. And I think we probably all become uh, the representative of that group that they uh, criticize. So um, this is the reporting, uh, I think, in more recent time. Uh, but going back, so starting from the early, mid 
September, you can see that this protest has never been mentioned once uh, in the first 10 days of this movement uh, by the state media, even in the English version. So, but I'm not saying because, uh, because of the time limit, I didn't really have the capacity to look into all state media because they have like say websites, they have newspaper, also printed newspapers. And there is also state, for example, TV programs. I'm not, this is not give you a very comprehensive uh, understanding of how it is reported, but I think it is representative enough of many of the focus and that um, how, how the Chinese state is uh, reporting it and that will have uh, influence on how the Chinese like people are perceiving it because the context in China is that the media is heavily controlled by the state so and even if the local media they usually have to follow the uh, reporting policies set by the state so that is one side of the story um, and then there are very few liberal leaning or marketized so there was a typo here. Marketize the media, for example, Caixin is one of them. And uh, um, since in the past 20 days, they have written six reports on it in a more relatively subjective way. It is also one of the most trustworthy, in my personal opinion, media in domestic China, especially the mainland right now. And this also shows the limited reporting space for institutionalized media in China. So the next slide is... Uh, my summary of uh, the Chinese social media sentiments. And first of all, social media, um, as in the West, I guess, most of the time the information there is really scattered because institutional media is heavily censored. So uh, on social media, people are relying on individual bloggers and the social media to provide updates. But these, like very short-lived um, social media posts, they usually only attract very short-lived attention and when and it's usually focused on very extreme cases, so it's not really a continuous reporting on the development of the story. No, um, there is no such a, a kind of a reporting or information kind of a channel for people to get a like a kind of a follow up or understanding like that. And also, there is also huge digital gap among different people, social groups. For example, social media is more widely used from by the teens up to people like say of 40 years old. My parents' generation, they don't use social media that often. And also it is also heavily used by urban population who are well educated. So the rural population and those who didn't receive really very good education, they become underrepresented in the social media. And then secondly, um, I think in general, there is insufficient understanding about Iran in China whether you consider Iran as a kind of a geographic area or as a country or the religion it represents or the culture behind it, uh, there is insufficient understanding in general, even among academics. And also, but very interestingly, um, I think I had a casual discussion with Fatima when we met in the office. People are making a lot of comparisons when they see instances like this. For example, uh, they were surprised because, for example, a lot of these international platforms uh, Google, Facebook, YouTube, Western media, BBC, CNN, uh, The Guardian, they are all blocked in China. So uh, Chinese people were surprised when they knew that, oh, because of these protests, WhatsApp and, and Instagram are now blocked in Iran. But that, that was never, ever like 
that was never like for many years, it was not even accessible for ordinary Chinese. So people realized, oh, probably there's even more control in China than in Iran. And also there are also, especially the liberals, I think, but um, I've also seen like friends um, asking why are, why is the protest happening in Iran and why the Chinese are not brave enough to organize something like this and why are we still suffering quietly? I think people have a lot of um, um, unexpressed opinions, especially during the COVID. Um, as you know, China still is still um, under this zero COVID policy. People's everyday life is still heavily restricted. So when Fritzmans talk about ordinary life, I don't think the people who are living in China at present is able to have an ordinary life because of this COVID policy. And also, it also uh, people make comparison about internal politics. So uh, if, say, these Iranian women, they are asking for uh, a kind of, a, say, they want the choice not to wear the hijab. In comparison, if, say, the Chinese government want to liberalize the domestic Muslim groups, for example, in Xinjiang, would that be legitimized as a comparison? So there are some discussion on this aspect as well. There are also um, collective memories of past incidences, especially I want to draw your attention to this screenshot because this is a social media post that's posted by some uh, individual blogger to talk about how an Iranian girl, um, only 20 years old, who was shot by the police to death during the protest. And when I was trying to repost it, I received this information, um, as you can see. Sorry, there's a violation of relevant laws and the regulations or the Weibo Community Convention, and the current operation is not possible. So you cannot repost such information, even there are individual bloggers who try to feed the information into the social media platform. Also, people have this discussion about the strong state and the weak state in this case, whether it is because Iran has a relatively weak state that there are still some space for civil society activities or social movements like this. That said, there are also people who have also shown solidarities because people are saying that we feel you to the Iranian people, although probably they wouldn't be able to hear their support right now. And this support usually comes from feminists, liberals, and non-statist leftists in China. Because among women, I think there is also this shared experience of controlling and policing women, and the women also suffer the most and become the bravest. I think this is true in Iran and also become true in China. Because if you look at a social uh, movement, there is no really social movement of any large scale in China um, in the past, say, let's say, uh, at least 10 years. But uh, the Me Too movement has been going on, still going on since 2018 and quietly for four years. And the women, a lot of women, ordinary women, are talking about their experience of being harassed, being aggressed, being censored, being abused, which I think shares a lot of similarities, but in a different form. Also, uh, when we get news about the Iranian, what is going on in Iran, we see this very similar uh, blockchain-style self-organization. Uh, the protests and movements are bottomed up. It's not really led by any political organizations or any political party. It is heavily relied upon social media and most of the people who are in the movement, the young generation. And as a result, as the movement is gaining popularity and support, the wider society started to join them as well. So this is also I think, a similar pattern that we can see from China. Thank you very much. Without further ado, may I turn to Rumeisa Chandelele? 
Yeah, of course. Hi. Uh, it is great to hear all the um, contexts and differences and also the commonalities between all the, all our experiences. As a uh, veiled woman that is not accepted to be veiled so much in Turkey as well, uh, it was an interesting period of time that I've been actually trying to understand more about the Iranian situation. And uh, But through that, first I want to say that I'm a Muslim feminist activist in Turkey and um Hijab ban has been one of the most important issues that I've uh, struggled against through my uh, through being a child. Actually, uh, I I was starting veiling um, in uh, when I was twelve, and I'm thirty four. So uh, it's been so much, so long time that I've been inside this um, issue uh, as a subject. So um, the ban itself in Turkey makes it uh, harder to discuss all these issues because my connection with the veil itself has been uh, because of this ban mainly these days, actually. So uh, if, it was the, if, it, if it wasn't the ban, I don't know if, what kind of a connection I would have with my veil. Uh, so um, the issues in Iran, uh, we try to discuss as both the ban itself and both the obligation of wearing a, a hijab is the same thing that's uh, mainly uh, around the manhood and uh, around patriarchy uh, talking about women. Um, so that's the thing that we are trying to discuss in Turkey. But uh, interestingly, Uh, the issue has been came to the agenda of the political parties in a different way. Uh, so the opposition's leader uh, has has had a interesting comment on uh, their uh, future approach around the ban itself. That uh, they will provide a law that will make it uh, impossible for the ban to come come uh, here in Turkey again. Uh, so. The opposition itself has been symbolized as a Kemalist and also one of the symbols of the ban itself uh, for some time now for the Turkish history. And so this kind of a change uh, has been uh, an interesting change that I uh, was actually shocked, but uh, want seemed to or felt to have it as a positive improvement. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the opposi- opposition uh, itself has been, uh, you know, um, not in the same page because they, uh, some of the political parties, leftist parties, uh, said that this CHB, the leader of the opposition, uh, is trying to be a right-wing uh, political party by saying this. So it's not the time to say this, etc. So we're Uh, after after 10 years of the ban uh, is over and uh, after all those years of discussions around hijab, now discussing all uh, the issue again from the start, actually. Uh, so we are starting to uh, trying to understand more about the agencies of hijabi women in Turkey, etc., or the uh, other way around. And the political pressure of the conservative side of the story true religion is getting more and more uh, increased. Uh, so it's like uh, getting complex in Turkey. And I I hope that the uh, resistance in Iran uh, will, will also reflect to our resistance in Turkey as a solidarity because uh, uh, we need so much of a, a 
struggle together as the uh, world's women's movements. And also, I can also have a a little um, comment on the um, identity of cultural identity of the women killed uh, in Iran and she being a Kurdish woman. And it is an interesting and important discussion as well that we, uh, I think, skip in all over the world uh, about the issue where um, her death was something uh, that's also about her uh, ethnical identity as well. So that's what uh, I want to say because, you know, the Kurdish issue is something that we all trying to discuss in Turkey and uh, we're not really able to. Uh, so I think it's also has a kind of a um, division around that, the discussion around that, that could be an important topic for our solid solidarity as well. So that's uh, from me. Thank you very much. And I'm also very happy that um, you've raised the, the identity of Shina Masa Amini. I think that's, we might have, I'm expecting a number of questions about that. Um, and um, our next speaker is, uh, how shall I address you as HS, perhaps? Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to uh, voice my thoughts on what's going on uh, regarding the hijab. And in, in India, we have a very different context. Uh, the previous speaker was talking about a hijab ban in Turkey. And in India also, a large number of Muslim women especially in southern India, where the hijab ban has really erupted as a very contentious issue. Uh, the hijab ban has become a very uh, contentious issue in uh, the southern part of India, as I said. So just to give a little bit of context about how this started, especially this year, in the month of February 2002, uh, a dispute arose in a junior college in a state of southern India. And uh, in, in that uh, incident, Several hijabi Muslim female students were not allowed to enter the college because it uh, because they were wearing a hijab and it supposedly went against the dress code that the college was imposing. So these uh, Muslim female students were not allowed to enter their college. They were disbarred from uh, entering the premises and some of them were even again not allowed to appear for the exams. So uh, so the so the matter went to the court. And the High Court of the, uh, the of the Southern Indian State ruled that hijab wearing is not an essential Islamic practice. In other words, the High Court of the state said that the hijab wearing the hijab is not an essential part of Islam. It is not an integral part of, part of the Islamic practice of life of, of way of life of everyday living. So, so when we talk about the state or when we talk about how. Uh, Mm, uh, masculinity is how a hegemonic masculinity or this kind of dominant masculinity tries to control women. In the case of India, we have to remember that there is this larger context of minority persecution. So the hijab ban is actually can actually be understood in India with along with patriarchal obsession of controlling women's bodies plus this whole context of minority persecution which has actually escalated ever since the current government under the Hindu nationalist government has come to power in 2014. So with the ascendance of this Hindu nationalist regime, what we have seen is a systematic and persistent uh, attack against minority communities, be it their way of life, their uh, way of uh, living, who they marry, what they wear, how Muslims divorce, how Muslims eat, 
what they eat how they uh, where they go for their studies what kind of uh, uh, madrasas they go to everything is up for questioning again and the government or the state the majoritarian religious state or the hindu nationalist state in this context in the indian context is actually impo- trying to impose this hijab ban in order to attack or the demoralize or, de- or demoralize these muslim women and the funny part is that in this all state machineries be it the executive the judiciary the legislature they all somehow they they come together in in a certain way so much so that in this case especially in the hijab ban case the judiciary actually in, is actually taking upon itself the role of interpreting islam or maybe telling muslims how they should be living their religious life or actually interpreting islam uh, and how and how and telling muslims whether hijab is an essential part of uh, their day to day activities or uh, in another case there was another another question that was put forward in front of the court whether offering namaz in a mosque is an essential part of the of uh, islamic life so what is happening in india at least with the hijab ban is not just patriarchy but also a larger system systematic persecution of religious minorities which only seems to be escalating so there is this obsession with controlling the bodies of the of women of the other community of the uh, of the marginalized other of the complete other who is of the other of the otherized community so there is a complete control of that along with Uh, this com- a complete state uh, state uh, bad persecution of uh, religious minorities so uh, so we have to see the, the hijab ban in the indian context along with this way and it's also important to re- uh, reiterate over here that in india it's not only muslim women who cover their heads there are other communities as well which uh, which require women to cover their head in different uh, situations so the so the issue of uh, hijab ban becomes even more pernicious because there are other communities where women are covering the head they are veiling themselves so it becomes much more contentious and there is this whole angle of uh, minority persecution so that needs to be factored in when we talk about india thank you thank you very much that was very important i just want to kind of abuse my position as a, as a chair and to kind of state how in the most simplistic terms patriarchal ideologies are defined as having control over women's bodies so we have seen the kind of uh, the same type of audacity to deny women's agency and to claim authority and power over women's bodies with the in the in the context of just hijab by compulsory veiling and by uh, by bans over veiling including in France including in Turkey including in India and i'm guessing we'll receive more questions from this and i'm happy that you highlighted this kind of denial of women's relationship with their own religion and, and claiming they would be ignorant uh, as if they don't have any space to establish another connection to the god and as if they are following some sort of false consciousness these are all kind of uh, important points i guess now last but not the least ida shahabi hi everyone um uh, thank you ev- everyone for all your thoughts and comments so far and um i can only sort of agree and um listen carefully to what everyone has said before me particularly fatima who i believe um is is iranian and is closely connected and following what's happening Um 
I I can just talk um, from my own positionality as a British Muslim and as a as a Bahraini as a Bahraini citizen. So I, I'm just going to offer some thoughts um, from that perspective. Um, you know, viewing the events in Iran it, from London, um, both from the perspective of you know the British Muslim community. Um, you know, we 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 watched as images of Iranian women. Uh, protest bravely in the face of police and it resonates particularly as an Arab to the images we saw in 2011 in the Arab Spring. Um, so we watch with tentative um, uh, eyes uh, and worry and concern over you know, the potential response, uh, particularly kind of the repression that ordinary Iranians face on the street. And um, I just want to point to the lovely um, essay that was translated in Jadalia recently uh, maybe we can share that link in which uh, the, it's uh, it's an essay written by some a protester in Iran and, and in which they kind of describe the feelings and emotions of being on the street and there was one line that particularly resonated with me that was um, that you know that being on the street suspends all thoughts of death and in that way we begin to understand people's relationship to that kind of uh, militarized and securitized confrontation in which fear no longer exists in the in the minds of those who take to the streets you know i i'm now there's a moment of liberation that people live that they can't forget and and it changes uh collective consciousness in in, in ways we can only uh appreciate um watching from a distance through the screen um but anyway and you know we're seeing kind of as observers and spectators to this we can only consume these images and um you know and and wish and hope and pray for the for for the safety of um activists and the women who uh are clearly fighting for their rights now from a british muslim perspective you know we british muslims are diverse they're varied in their sectarian background um but it's really about the question of the hijab itself as an object and as a symbol. So in that sense, what does the hijab mean? And the fear that the the, the tendency to valorize and obviously uh, where, where we should rightly support protest movements can be reused to possibly um, garner the, you know, the far right and other Islamic islamophobic tendencies that aren't necessarily far right that are basically mainstream in the west so without necessarily um decentering the role of iranian women if the hijab becomes repoliticized in this way through the burning of the hijab and others um how does that feed into uh islamophobic agendas and and is that the reason why uh liberal feminists and others who do within their own movements retain Islamophobic ten- tendencies that are not intersectional in any way um, to suppress Muslim women, British in, in the UK and France and others. So in that sense, there's a sense of ambil- ambivalence towards the response, not towards Iranian women, towards the response of the West to Iranian protests and Iranian activists. In that. And it's, it's worrying because it, it, it should be a way of opening up a conversation not a com- not necessarily comparative one, but about female subjectivity to choose who they want to be and to wear who they want to be. So, for example, recently French Muslim, sorry, sorry, French activists 
you know, were cutting their hair in solidarity or Israeli so-called feminists were also standing in solidarity with Iranian women. Now, of course, here we're, they do this while repressing Muslim women or Palestinian women. So the question is there, there is what is the duplicity and how do we address this? How do we, maybe it's not, it's not the job of Iranian women, but how do we address the duplicity in ways that calls out the, the, own, the repression from within these countries themselves, Western countries themselves. Um, yeah, so this is just kind of being mindful of Gayatri Spivak's notion that, you know, white people really want to just want to save brown women from brown men, really. Not really. It's, it's, if, it's, if it's about Palestinian women, they're not interested. If it's about um, women's rights and Muslim rights in France, they're not interested. If it's about Saudi Arabian women wanting to drive, they're not interested. If it's about you know the arrest of um, uh, the ending of of uh, the apartheid state in um, Palestine, they're not interested. So it's just kind of questions around British Muslim concerns around that duplicity. Um, similarly, within the Gulf, uh, because the kind of the, the, this anti-Iranianism that we generally see by from Saudi Arabia, from the Gulf, from the UK, and others. Uh, this feeds into, you know, the circulation of images feeds into that kind of agenda. So it brings up the the kind of the fears of and concerns. Are women's rights yet again being used as a fig leaf for a kind of neo-imperialist agenda that wants to continue repressing Iran as a whole through sanctions, through um, possibly military intervention? Um, and how do how the question for us is how do we can we, as as movements uh, calling for women's rights, um, do something that doesn't get us embroiled in these geopolitical calculations? And is that too much to ask from pe- simple, ordinary people who want to ask basic rights? I say that with tentative hooks because, you know, we, we saw in the 2011 Arab Spring how the geopolitics then overcame these movements. I don't know if this is the right moment to do that or not. But this is just the kind of a cautionary tale uh, of from what we've seen happen uh, elsewhere in Syria and in other in Afghanistan, even where some of these things do not fall in with the geopolitical calculations that sometimes sabotage. And while whilst they celebrate them, they can also destroy them at the same time. Movements at the same time. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. These questions are piling up. So um, floor is yours. Who would like to go next? I'm guessing I should turn to Fatima because there were a number of questions being asked. Fatima, would you like to go ahead? And then, Huan, it seems like you will be next because I'm seeing a number of questions about China specifically. You can also address some of the questions raised by the panel members, actually. And uh, like there were a couple of points raised about the Kurdishness of um of the movement, not only about the 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 identity of the victim, but also um, where the kind of uprising has started from the mm-hmm. Kurdish regions, and also Jinjay and Azadi, in fact, is kind of one of the yeah, like one of the essential slogans of the Kurdish movement, crafted like individually by Abdullah Jalan himself. Um, Abdullah and, Jalan. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I'm guessing you might want to start with that because I feel like it's one of the repeating yeah. important points. So I think that uh, yeah that's a very good question actually because uh although Masa Amini was a Kurdish woman and who I mean um 
lived in the small town of Saqqiz in Iranian Kurdistan. Um, but this, this Kurdishness um, is not um, much, uh, I think, within this movement. Um, actually, there are two things that I have to explain. One is this Kurdishness, and one it's the relationship of, of this Kurdishness with the, with the whole movement. Uh, so this Kurdishness is actually very important, and so many Iranians, even Baluks, you know, Arabs, Azaris, um, and, and and even in central um, parts of Iran, um, you know, uh, express their uh, sympathy because Kurdistan has been one of the regions that have been severely oppressed, uh, not only after but also before the revolution. So it is a uh, marginalized province. Um, it is, uh, and then so many people are actually struggling with poverty and um, precarity and severe economic and environmental hardships. So this is um, so because of Massa, because Massa was Kurdish. This added to the you know the anger of the people who are familiar with the level of oppression, with the, the, the problems of Kurdistan. But, um, you know, here that was, I mean, very interesting incident happened. Although that was, I mean, this Kurdish identity and the Kurdishness um, was raised, but at the same time, it actually helped the solidarity of, um, of the nation. Uh, so many Iranians from different parts of Iran as I said, uh, you know, express their sympathy, and it added to, like the the solidarity of I mean, national solidarity. I think that that was very interesting. So it and, hasn't been sidelined as a minority issue. That's important. That's the importance yes, you are yes, highlighting. Was, exactly. So that is uh, one of the things that you know. I actually, so many people are aware and are still worried. Um, you know about. Uh, you know, this identity and the potential dangers for division of the, you know, collapse, internal collapse and division and so on. But um, Allah, uh, I think Allah um, raised a very important and interesting notion that once you are on the streets, um, another future, even uh, another future is possible. And even you start thinking about your presence differently. And, and that is the, uh, the interesting issue of that. So, yes, that was a, a question of Kurdishness. But that question of Kurdishness was suddenly was put in the broader context of, uh, of the, the sufferings of the nation, being uh, whether they are Kurdish, whether they are Baluks, or whether they are Arabs and so on. So, and I have to say that the, the news of Zahidan, another, uh, you know, very... Um, deeply uh, actually impoverished uh, province in Iran, neighboring Pakistan. The news of the the coming uh, of the Zahidan, I mean, that was a uh, the news was that uh, so many protest uh, protesters wanted to um, make protests on the streets of Zahidan in protest against the the reportedly uh, rape and killing of a young woman by the head of the by the head of the the military and uh, police of Zaida. So the news came up and the people took to the street. But before that, they were shot and so many of them were dead by the police. So this news added to, uh, was added to the, the, the this, you know, the news of Mahsa and so on. 
So suddenly you see that the whole nation is grieving because of the, you know, because of being um, Iranian in front of a regime that is oppressive, um, whether you are, um, you know, you are Kurds, whether you are Arabs, whether you are Baluchs, or whether you are from, uh, you know, women or men, or whether whether you are from upper or middle class or uh, or working class. So that that was actually a sense of solidarity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Ruan, um, I can see there are a number of questions regarding your contribution, and I can see how welcomed and, and found to be much needed. Um, so is it okay if I let you pick the question you'd like to address? Yeah, I think uh, many of these questions are actually related, and they are also related to the, um, say, uh, social media reactions that I've shared earlier. Uh, but probably requires further discussion. So um, I think as we discuss, we have received one comment who says uh, that while I'm texting, they have blocked the building next to us and more fences had been brought back tonight uh, under this zero COVID policy. And uh, it feels like the worst nightmare, but nightmare, but thank you for seeing this. Um, I, and also I think another question related to this is like, uh, uh, do you think Chinese are indifferent to indifferent to hegemony, or is it just based on our instincts? So I, I think I know what 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 is what what this um, audience is asking, and I think there are a lot of discussions about why the Chinese have quietly suffered so much, but then no large scale social movement was ever uh, slightly possible, or it, it went, actually there are a lot of like small-scale social movements happening in China every year. If you look at some databases, because there are civil society groups who are documenting this, but most of the time when they happen, um, they were cracked down before people, like even in the same city, can get to know about uh, these instances. So there is a high, highly controlled in terms of information, and people don't know even, um, say, their close neighborhoods. So on the one hand, um, I... I, I don't really think that the Chinese are so different from other people in terms of they, they are willing to suffer more. Um, and I also don't agree uh, when, say, some people say that the Chinese are not brave because Chinese, the identity itself is such a complex term. For example, I, I for example, the feminist movement has been going on very, very quietly, although under very tight censorship. Uh, for four years and it's still going on. So you can't, I don't think it does justice to the feminists when you say that the Chinese women are not brave enough. And also there are other minority groups in China who has tried to fight unsuccessfully, I guess. Look at what's happening in Hong Kong, look at what's happening in Xinjiang. I, I think it's also unfair to say that they are not brave enough. I think they are very, very brave, but then uh, but the, the, the counter force is also very, very strong. So um, so I think there is one question that asks, is there a safe and effective way of resistance? Um, going back to the, the point of ordinariness, I think the resistance also, I think, comes from everyday life. And there are many, many different ways of resistance. It doesn't need to be uh, on the street. That's one way of resistance, very open resistance. Talking about it openly is a kind of resistance. There are more, also more subtle ways of resistance. And I think the young generation is already realizing this. For example, if you look at the fertility rate in China, it's very low. 
young people are not cooperating. And I see uh, many young generation commenting on social media saying that if we can't live a happy life in contemporary China, why do we bring a new kid to the, to the society to, to experience the same thing? So I think that is also a kind of resistance in a very subtle way. And also it's reflected in your everyday life. Mm, yeah, um, so I think resistance comes in multiple ways. And I wouldn't encourage young people to become martyrs. I think you need to learn to be smart and uh, resist in the well, affordable way, I would say. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Xuan. Um, There are a number of questions immediately uh, addressing Fatima, but there is one question which opens up the conversation a little bit further. So I'm going to kind of bring this fo- this one forward. Uh, this one is by Yasmin Huang, who says, I'm also very curious about this intersectionality in the uprising. Could you please share more about this in the context of Iran and Turkey? And if I may, I would be also interested in bringing more like Pakistan and India as well, actually. So just kind of further to think about the intersectionality aspect. How are people seeing themselves, relate, like relating themselves to the movement emotionally, intellectually? Uh, yeah, that's a very important question. Um Actually, part of the the answer I, I already um, said in a previous question that you know um, the identity here um, plays a role. You know, for instance, Kurdishness plays a major role here. But I mean, this is the the intersectionality. Masa Amini was a woman who was arrested and murdered by the police, but who was also uh, she was also a Kurdish woman. And that's an intersection that is uh, that that is um, appear, that that appears here. So there is this kind of intersectionality, and and you can see it in different versions, such as you know uh, those women who are uh, in Zahedan now in Baluchistan, Iranian Baluchistan actually. And this is another intersectionality, although they are Iranian, but they are also this. Um, you know, um, they are women and they are also Baluks. And because of that, the discrimination is actually an added discrimination because of being the provincial uh, woman and also because of women. So in Zahidan, for instance, you have this uh, sort of, um, because there are also, uh, in, in Zahidan, we have also a Sunni uh, like element as well. And part of the Sunni, um, you know, elements uh, we can see also in, in in Kurdistan. So they are women, they are from Kurdistan, and they are many of them are Sunni. So these are the added sort of um, intersectionality that we see here. But um, I I can, I can say that um, you know yes, there is this, the intersectionality which is important, but. Uh, those even who are not Kurdish, uh, they are not women, and also not Sunni. Like the majority of the uh, farce um, that are, you know, also originally Shiite, and also men, they also feel solidarity with this movement because I think what actually links all of them together is this element of humiliation and this deprivation of ordinary life. So I actually, um, maybe there was a, 
um, little misunderstanding in what I said, what I, uh, I was saying about ordinary life as well. I actually saw so many comments that, I mean, as one also said that uh, there is no ordinary life in China. So I'm, I'm actually going to say that exactly the situation in Iran is this, that women try to, you know, to regain the ordinary life by emphasizing that, that this is important. This is ordinary life that is important. You know, dancing is important, music is important, life itself is important. And that's what try, they try to, you know, um, say by the slogan Zam Zendegi Azadi. So in different contexts, you see that this slogan is, is, is set, but in different contexts, um, people, you know, feel, uh, feel discrimination in one way or the other. But at the same time, there is this feeling of solidarity because all of them, uh, no matter where and how and when, they actually experience this humility, um, humiliation, and they want to, to, to have life back. So there is this intersectionality element, but apart from that, there are other things as well. So I try to, you know, by concept of ordinary life, I try to actually conceptualize the whole feeling. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm guessing Romesa and Sumran and HS yeah. would also want to contribute to the conversation. Yeah, of course, from the Turkey side, um, from my perspective, from my context of being a Muslim feminist and being a part of the feminist movement, I think we have uh, given such a struggle within the feminist struggle itself. Uh, so uh, I've been an activist for 10 years, more than 10 years now. And for the first years, I actually wasn't accepted to be a feminist at all uh so by whom uh by the secular feminists and also by the others as well so muslim being a muslim and being a feminist wasn't something that was accepted so much but feminist movement itself actually i think given an important lesson that uh, this kind of intersectionality is possible but i think it's not about only the secular ones accepting the muslims but also the muslim women trying to be there trying to be present in the moment itself through its own stories and on uh, its own uh, issues there. Like we have uh, established different platforms, online platforms and association uh, so closely. So I think that's such an effort that needs a mutual contract and mutual, uh, you know, um, struggle uh, throughout. Uh, But as I mentioned, it's to be a mutual one. Uh, of course, I'm uh, talking about my experience about the Mus- being a Muslim woman, but I don't think we, as feminist women, we couldn't give out the lesson to be inter- intersectional in terms of having the Syrian or refugee, uh, other refugee women involved in the movement, or e- even the Kurdish women uh, still are not re- really included to the mainstream uh, parts of the discussion. So I think it's a huge process that we are trying to have this resistance in between us against all the pressure that we are experiencing. Sometimes it becomes something that's not, you know, don't talk this, these times because we have many issues around us kind of an issue. But I think we are uh, giving a nice uh, effort on that. And uh, there is a huge transformation that I, that I experience personally in the Turkish feminist movement. Yeah. Thank you very much. May I also add, um, again, I keep abusing my power as a chair, but uh, I know Rumeysa 
from the moment she was dragged into this politics, actually, by a very simple thing, performing something she desires. She's a musician and, and, and she was performing on the stage at her university, which on the next day we've seen her on the newspapers, in one of the secularist newspapers, saying both hijabi and playing guitar as if they have they have to be mutually exclusive with that tone in it so in the kind of polarized context even the kind of simple steps would you drag would like the kind of the question was about intersectionality and i think humans are intersectional anyway we are kind of multiple we have multiple desires multiple subject positionings etc and in the kind of polarized context we are dragged into into intersectional politics uh, is what I wanted to add. Sumrin or HS, would you like to add any notes? Yeah, I think I would go ahead. I think um, there are a few things that I have been coming to my mind first uh, regarding this intersectionality question. Um, I mean, the example that I gave from Pakistan, Nurmukaddam, she comes from the elite group. Um, in fact, even when it came to Pakistan, it comes to Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto, she was murdered by Islamists, despite being the um, having the highest, um, you know, <clears throat> coming from the dynastic politics, as we as you call it. And uh, so, I believe the intersectionality, particularly in the in terms of class, is important. But uh, when it comes to being a woman, um, these class dynamics somehow do not matter so much, and uh, the women somehow continue to get prosecuted despite whatever uh, class dynamic they come from. In India, for example, but yes, like in cases like India, if you're from an ethnic minority or from a religious minority, that can be a different thing. But in India as well, when we go and look beyond the um, the religious divide, rape culture is quite a common thing. And women are persecuted left and right, regardless of, yes, it does change um, the, the extent of persecution. But we have to remember that... Um, women's movements and women's activism, just like the same way women themselves are, uh, you know, in dif- disproportionately being um, subjected to different kinds of oppression remains a concern without just the intersectionality issue. And that brings me to the point of um, which Allah raised about uh, the co-option of the women's active activist movements that we have seen um, having making it uh, this argument of uh, brown Muslim Muslim women needing saving from brown men, kind of becoming a reason for um, you know to further certain kinds of geopolitical agendas, that is also another way the women's activisms are persecuted or oppressed uh, on a global scale. Um, the spring, you know, I've been trying to uh, keep remembering about this uh, particular statistics that was shared recently about Pew um, <clears throat> research. Um, out of fifty-six countries, uh, forty-two countries, women are harassed for wearing clothes which violate secular norms for wearing the hijab. Whereas in 19 countries, they're harassed for wearing clothes, which violate religious norms, like, for example, for um, not uh, wearing, you know, for not wearing hijab or for violating to not uh, disagreeing to wear the hijab. So the problem here is perhaps on a broader scale, when we look at these kind of protests, we need to remember that uh, the injustice is um, 
in general against the women and uh, and as more and more we go towards um, more insecurities and uh, inequalities the 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 women's body becomes uh, a way of exercising power over it and then you know it becomes an expression of uh, of you know showing off the frustrations and that are coming uh, in general and there there i think we need a little bit more debate on uh, what does it mean for uh, women's movement on a global level um and how can we you know find solidarity and move away from the question of the muslim woman or the brown woman and you know somehow be able to connect across these kind of divides and actually do something or talk about things that do not make it possible for other powers to co-opt these kinds of uh, movements and which is why i think india is an example an important aspect because it's not just about whether somebody wears a hijab or does not wear a hijab or does not want to wear a hijab it is definitely about that but it's more about why do we find it so important or why do people find it so important to control women's bodies and decide what they want to do with their lives thank you very much there was um i think we have just enough time three minutes to be precise uh for one more question and uh, i think i'll going to uh, look at sebastian garnier's question how strong is the support of this revolt does a vast majority of the population wants to fall off the regime the question is specifically about iran i understand that but i think it also gives us the opportunity to highlight some of the some of the elements about um uh about the support to the revolt across the world perhaps okay thank you so much uh how strong is the support of this revolt uh, i have to say it is a strong and um so many surveys and um let's say the 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 scholarships and uh, also numerous qualitative and quantitative data uh, actually uh, predicted that something like this might ha- might happen And um, what we see on the streets are somehow, although it's completely different and it might have um, might lead to other directions, uh, but the, the the you know the support of the society for this movement is high. And another sign is that now there are um, high school children, the high school boys and girls who are chanting on the streets against the regime. So because of that, uh, you know, we are actually, I think that we actually entered um, a, a revolutionary situation. I'm not saying that tomorrow there will be another revolution, but um, I mean, the, the, the people's, um, uh, you know, that there are so many added and accumulation of problems in Iran that the government is not willing and probably is not anymore able to solve. And uh, that leads me to um, the second part of the question, how um, uh, strong is the repression? And I think exactly, I mean, because the government is not willing to and is even not able now to solve the problem and this, um, you know, pervasive sense of unwillingness, everybody knows that. And, and this is quite surprising even for the 
for the um, authorities who are among the, the core of the, the regime, they also started criticizing this um, the way of approaching the, you know, protesters and all the time, you know, bringing justifications such as they are influenced by the West, they are, you know, the U.S., they are Israel, which is not true, actually. So, uh, yeah, I think that the level of repression is high because because of the regime's inability to respond to the demands of the people. But there are some, you know, short-term and also long-term consequences. Uh, just to, to keep it short, for short-term consequence, I think that the level of oppression of women will be uh, decreased. That does not mean that they will try other ways. Like, you know, they might, um, uh, you know, abolish all these... Uh, you know, police on the streets, but uh, they they might continue that repression in other ways. But in the long run, I think um, we you know we are in a situation that um, some un, uneven, unimagined consequences might happen. And I think that um, I think that the the ability of the inability of the regime is actually pervasive. And but we cannot predict the result yet. Thank you. Thank you very much. And anybody would like to add? I'm looking at Ayla, guessing she might have something to add, but I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, we look on. This is we're talking about a state now um, that's that experienced a large-scale revolution over 40 years ago, and um, it needs to reconcile its particular mode of governance around um, what a theological state um, can do in today's world order under very strict global sanctions. You know, it's the most isolated country um, by far that's had the longest running sanctions economically. Um, It's hard to tell uh, how it's managed to sustain um, theological rule for this long, for over 40 years, without kind of succumbing to, you know, global um, hegemonic Western culture, for example, media, um, and how you can kind of sort of insulate society from, you know, global trends and uh, Western liberalism, basically. Um, so recoli- reconciling sort of this secular liberalism with a theocracy is something that I think is goes much deeper than the question of the headscarf. It goes really to the kind of um, the purpose and the principles of rule itself, um and so yeah we wait to see how the republic either renews itself to deal with with that deeper question or whether it you know it, it reverts to to um you know kind of um older forms of just pure you know just repression to just kind of kill the debate off but we know that iran this is my impression from the outside is you know a very rich complex country in which um there are uh different political trends within it um there are different political voices within it whether they're allowed to speak whether they're allowed to debate this question whether they're they're allowed to come up with ways of moving forward to either kind of embody revolutionary fervor on the streets or whether to open up deeper questions about the future of the country is something that we all are waiting to are watching and waiting to see Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we are four minutes behind our closure time. So what I'd like to do, first of all, amongst the the comments we have been receiving, I'd like to thank everyone, um, 
uh, and the last two comments were from Mama Pranvera and Yu Fang, very uh, encouraging notes. Um, so I would like to say you've listened to um, Women, Life, Freedom, Iran Uprising and its International Impact uh, as part of Tahayul Indigeneity and Emergent Issues podcast series, which means we will be editing this uh, live uh, broadcast into a into a podcast. And we are hoping to host you in our future events. I'd like to thank each one of our guests very much for their time, for pouring their mind and heart into this conversation that's very valuable, which is immediately related to the very need we had in putting together a series like this as, you know, scholars from the geographies we are working on. My colleague here, Fatima, um, in the meeting used the term, we are those who do not just have the return ticket. Uh, from the geographies that we are focusing on. We are a lot more bounded and rooted, which is shaping up the way we are positioning ourselves very, very deeply, not being dismissive to other scholars, obviously, but it has a significance and we are fully aware of it. Um, and the event series are, of course, hosted by the Institute for Global Prosperity, who, who they are already hosting our project. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, Zishan Kukad and um, Hazal Aydin as well, who have been instrumental in putting together this series. So um, so if you can unmute yourself and, and we can all thank together, perhaps, um, to the uh, audience who have been following us till this moment. At one point, we had over 100 listeners. We are closing up right now and we have 60, which is a great number. And I should thank you and also Juan and Ala and Sumrin and uh, your honorable guest from Turkey, which I cannot And we have the HS, the, our anonymous. Yeah. So I, I realize that there are so many commonalities and, uh, I mean, shared concern and common concerns among us. So as Sumrin said, I think that we, we can do something about it, probably. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for everyone who engaged with us, too. Thank you. Bye. Bye.